Turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We'll begin looking at verses 9 through 14. At Stanford University in 2005, Steve Jobs gave the commencement address, and in it he outlined his own philosophy of life, uh, an important incident that took place in his life uh, that, that changed the course of how he viewed life. He says, when I was 17, I read a quote that went something like this. If you live each day as if it was your last, someday you'll most certainly be right. It made an impression on me, and since then, for the past 33 years, I have looked in the mirror every morning and asked myself, if today were the last day of my life, would I want to do what I'm about to do today? And whenever the answer has been no for too many days in a row, I know I need to change something. On one woman's website, an artist and small business owner, she's named Jim, Jen Bourne, she explains the reason for her own business. People often ask me how I came up with my business name, which is P.S. Enjoy Your Life. Well, I started out as a reminder, it started out as a reminder to myself to do what makes me happy and to put my all into something and to trust that good things will come from it. As I created, I began to think about how this way of thinking might help others. This is what really drove me and has been my major source of encouragement over the years, to keep going, to spread smiles, hope, and love to people who need it most. When a person battling cancer buys one of my enjoya blocks to use as a source of hope and faith, or a lost soul finds comfort in one of my follow-your-heart blocks, or a mother who just lost her son is comforted by the simple phrase, quote, P.S., enjoy your life. That's it at the very core. I found my purpose in this business and can only hope that it helps others find theirs or at least puts a smile on their face. Because let's face it, life is short. We might as well enjoy it, all caps. Well, what is your philosophy of life? What's the motto that drives your, your life? What, what's the motto that spurs you on to living for that purpose which you think is central to your being? Live like each day is your last. I've heard the, the phrase or the motto, love your life or leave it. In other words, if you don't enjoy the life that you're having, change it. Get rid of your marriage or your job or your location. If you're thinking biblically, maybe you think something along the lines of the Westminster Catechism. My chief purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Or simply, I exist to love God and other people. It's important to have a right view of this, isn't it? Uh, If we don't have a right view of life under God, then we'll get everything wrong no matter how pure our motives might be but just as important as actually having the right view of life in this world is living it out in other words not only stating that our life's purpose is one thing but actually making our life follow the course of that statement patterning our lives after what we say we believe it doesn't matter much if you have the correct philosophy but don't live it out right 
And so I want you to consider kind of three layers of, of this this morning. First, what is my philosophy of life? What, what is life all, all about? What is the meaning of life? Why do I exist? If you haven't thought about that, that's the first place to start. Do you have a biblical worldview of what life is all about? Second, consider, in light of that statement, is the pattern of my life following that? In other words, overall, you're not going to be perfect, in other words, but overall, day after day, am I patterning my life after the the purpose for which I exist? And then if that's yes, then you can take it down another level and you can consider, well, then what, in what ways do kind of the sharp edges of my life still need to be sanded down to be conformed to the reason why I exist? Because we, we all sin, right? And what is sin except for rebelling against our purpose, rebelling against the God who made us? So there's a layer of application for everyone here today. Consider day in and day out. What, what are those hidden recesses, those parts of my life that I haven't yet allowed to be brought into the light of God and his sovereignty over me, his rule over me and submitted to him? Well, as we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, we see the author's take on these things. What is the meaning of life? How should we live? What should be our philosophy of life? And the answer he comes to is that it must find its orientation around God, ultimately. Right? Because these other philosophies of life we encounter, what makes me happy? Do I think it's right or wrong? These are oriented around self rather than God. We can only really find meaning as we orient ourselves around the creator and ruler of all things, God Almighty. Let's look at our passage together, Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 14. We're going to start with this, but be ready to turn pages because we're also going to be looking throughout the book of Ecclesiastes to see the, the main themes and the argument of the book. Scripture says, Besides being wise... The preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by a shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Our Father, would you add your blessing to the reading and preaching of your word? Penetrate our hearts and our minds so that we would hear this message that you have for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, if you've read it recently, if you've read it in your life, maybe it has struck you as a little bit odd or strange. And I'm not the first to come to this conclusion. I'm in good company. Over the years, many Christians and others have debated the value of Ecclesiastes, and even whether or not it should be a part of Scripture. Sometimes Ecclesiastes sounds a lot like other wisdom literature. 
It's full of Proverbs-like saying. For example, Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow. Or Ecclesiastes 5, 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter word a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Sounds like good advice. Sounds like Proverbs or James, kind of our New Testament Proverbs. However, we also encounter seemingly inconsistent things, seemingly contradictory statements, even kind of unorthodox statements. Consider Ecclesiastes 7, 16 and 17. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Don't be too righteous. And don't be too wicked. Or Ecclesiastes 7, 3 through 4. Look, the teacher says, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. But then in another Verse, chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. He says, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and your, in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand fi- finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shale to which you are going. Which is it? Go to the house of mourning or enjoy it while you you have life. And then there's this very interesting passage in Ecclesiastes 10.19. It wouldn't make a good bumper sticker. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Huh. (laughs) Interesting. So with these things, we have to decide what are we going to do with this book? What are we going to do with these sayings? And there have been traditionally several different approaches. So let me give you a few options. Hopefully I won't throw you off with this, but these will be short statements about how we can understand the book and these these seemingly difficult statements. First, there could be a view called the skeptic versus teacher approach to this book. So in this view, the teacher is speaking true and orthodox things, but there's this skeptic which keeps speaking as well. And he's speaking all of these unorthodox or inconsistent sayings. So that would be the skeptic versus teacher, so interspersed. Second, there would be the growth in wisdom approach. Growth in wisdom. So this view says that the book is all one speaker, but he's grown over time. He's grown in wisdom. So the unorthodox statements are him in his young, immature life, and the, the better statements are as he has grown in wisdom. Then there's what I call the Photoshop approach. This is when you just smooth over the edges and act like nothing's wrong, right? So you kind of smooth over the inconsistencies and the unorthodox statements. You carefully explain them and show how they make sense if you hold them up in just the right light, if you have the the right nuance to them. I actually have seen some of that in uh, some of the, the study Bibles. It was Amazing how they they explain some of these things away and they just vanish. But in contrast to all these, I'd like to give another alternative, and it's what I would call the father-son devotional approach. 
So one Old Testament scholar who advocates this view is Trimper Longman. I owe a lot to him in this sermon. A lot of things that I'm bringing to you have come from studying the things that he said about this passage. So let me explain this father-son devotional approach. First look at uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2 of Ecclesiastes. And you see, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That word preacher could be translated teacher or maybe even better, assembler, one who assembles people together. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now flip back to the end of the book, chapter 12, verse 8. And you see basically the same phrase. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Now what, what the author is doing here is what's called an inclusio. So say that, that's kind of a technical word. Say that with me, inclusio. Inclusio. That's a fancy biblical studies word which means something like bracket or a frame. So these two verses form a bracket around the words of this, this teacher, this preacher. Everything inside the frame is one long speech by the teacher. And everything outside of the frame, so that would be verses 1 and 2, and then also chapter 12, verses 8 through 14, are the author of the book, which is a different speaker than the teacher. So there are two speakers, the teacher and the author. And there are two messages. One is the message of the teacher, and the other is the message of the author. And this second message is the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I don't want to, to throw you off that um, this view uh, doesn't have any difficulties. I think no matter which view of the book you take, you're going to come into the difficulties and say, well, does that make sense there? And trying to fit it into pieces. So I feel in some ways like I'm preaching a book without having fully mastered it but that's what i do every sunday so that's not that that big of a deal Uh, when will we master the scriptures right and so there are two speakers the teacher and the author and there are two messages i call it the father-son devotional approach because you could almost imagine a father and son reading this together did you see when we read at the end uh the author says he, he warns his son beware son of anything beyond these so it's almost like they're reading this speech together And this father is teaching his son wisdom. But really, this is a common approach to wisdom literature. The author speaking as a father to his son. So really, in a sense, we are the son. We are the one learning from this author. We are being instructed as sons and daughters of wisdom. So what I'd like to do for the rest of the sermon is show you these two messages. The message of the teacher and the message of the author or the book of Ecclesiastes. And we'll do that with the aim of helping us to live faithfully before God with a right understanding of this life and this world. Live faithfully in the midst of this messed up world, this this broken world because of sin. Well, the message of the teacher is summarized in several different ways. We could see that it's summarized in verses 2 through 11 of chapter 1. Verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. He gives the picture of the sun being fatigued by this continual 
rising and setting. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So Trimper Longman summarizes the teacher's message in this way. Life stinks and then you die. And I would add to that, and nobody even remembers your name. Right? The opposite of cheers. We want to go where somebody remembers our name. Well, this life is vanity. We could summarize the, author, the, the teacher's message by verse 2 and verse 8 of chapter 12. How the author summarizes his teaching. Vanity of vanity, says the teacher. All is vanity. And that word vanity here is like when you open up the oven and a puff of hot air comes out of the oven, and, but then it's, it dissipates. It's, it's quickly gone. It's a word which uh, refers to something which is transitory or fleeting. Some have even gone so far as to translate the word absurd or meaningless. And can't you kind of understand why this, this message resonates with people? I happen to know for a fact that some of you are cynical people. And if you know me well enough, I can be cynical at times too. But just think about some of the reasons why the teacher comes to this conclusion that everything is vanity, everything is meaningless. Look at Ecclesiastes 2, verses 15 through 17. 2, 15 through 17. I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen also to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. So too, he says in chapter 9, that the righteous and the wicked, they have the same fate. They both die. So for the teacher, they're the great equalizer of the wise and the foolish, of the righteous and the wicked, of the clean and unclean, is death. It lays everyone down in the dust, six feet under. And there's no enjoyment in the grave. Therefore, it's all just a puff of smoke. It's all weariness. It's all vanity. But this is related to another reason why one might conclude that life is meaningless or that life is vanity. From the teacher's perspective, justice is not always achieved. Justice is not always accomplished. Ecclesiastes 3.16 I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Or chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. 
This is depressing. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. The teacher in these cases seems to be holding to a life philosophy, what we might call que sera, sera. You've heard that term before. What will be, will be. In other words, it doesn't really matter what we do or how we live because this is just how life is. It's going to turn out this way. Now, this is not the biblical understanding of living under a sovereign God. This is resignation to just fate. Therefore, it doesn't matter. Nothing, nothing really matters because this is just how life will be. It will be this way. Everybody ends up in the dust. Injustice has its day. The powerful oppress the weak. There's nothing we can do. This is just life. But another scholar, Peter N., suggests this is not where he ends up. This is, this is not his ultimate philosophy of how he ought to live. Rather, he says, says this, resurrect, uh, this resignation to fate leads the teacher to another sort of life philosophy, namely that which we know also as carpe diem. You've probably heard that term as well. This is a Latin phrase which means seize the day. In other words, make the most of the present day, give little thought to the future, seize today for everything that it's worth. So the teacher's philosophy, we could say, is carpe diem because you're going to die anyway. Tomorrow you may not be here, so you better seize today. We see this in a few places. So look at uh, chapter 3, verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that all of man, or you could translate, the whole duty of man is to eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Enjoy life. So this phrase, all of man, or all man, occurs in three other places in Ecclesiastes. Another instance is in chapter 5, verse 19, where again, the teacher is espousing this carpe diem philosophy of life. Eat, drink, and find enjoyment in life, because this is God's gift. The third place is found in Ecclesiastes 7, 2. Chapter 7, verse 2. We have seen this passage already. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all man. There's that phrase, all man. And the living will lay it to heart. So these three occurrences of this phrase, all man, bring together the teacher's philosophy of life. The end of all man is death. Therefore, the whole duty of man, all that is required for him is to enjoy life while he has it. Now, there's a certain appeal to that philosophy of life, isn't there? Enjoy life. Life is short, so get all of the enjoyment out of it that you possibly can. And perhaps we all live by this philosophy at some point in our lives. Yesterday, the day before, 
Consider, were there times this past week where you simply kind of threw everything out the window and just wanted to live for your enjoyment? You'd had a hard week. You'd had, you know, people treating you the wrong way. So you deserved enjoyment for yourself. Really, for a a moment, perhaps you, you forgot God. You lived your own life as it oriented around yourself and your own pleasure and not God. Everyone will die. Life under the sun is hard. Everyone will die. We don't know how long we have left in this life, which is a gift from God. Therefore, just make the most of the situation. Enjoy this life while we have it. But for the teacher, that's the whole of the story. That's all. That's where it ends. And that's not good enough. Is that good enough to to give meaning to your life? Just enjoy life? For some that might be enough, but it's not enough for me, and it's not enough for the author of Ecclesiastes. So now we're going to turn to the second message in this book, the author's message. We hear the author's voice in chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, and then again in chapter 12, verses 8 through 14. So let's look at that together, especially verses 9 through 14. And I want you to notice what it is he's saying. Verses 9 through 10, the author seems to be showing appreciation for the teacher. He was wise in a certain sense. He was a teacher of people. He went to great pains to grow in knowledge and wisdom. He was searching out wisdom and knowledge. He took great care in composing these Proverbs, in sorting them together. He sought to find words. He, he tried to find words of delight and to write words of truth. Verse 11 is a metaphor for the writings of wisdom. He says they are like goads or sharp points on the end of sticks used by shepherds, used by a shepherd to help guide, but they also hurt you imagine something like a nail on the end of a stick being poked with it? That's the, the image that the author gives here. Verse 12 is a warning from the father to the son to be aware of anything beyond words of the wise. It's unclear to what extent we should or shouldn't include the words of the teacher in this. It, it, it almost seems like he's saying, these words of the teacher, they, they themselves, they, they sting, they, they hurt. There, there's something not helpful in this. The father shows appreciation for the teacher, but it's not an unqualified endorsement of everything that he has to say. He warns his son, of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. In other words, you can wear yourself out finding the latest books on wisdom and self-help and be none the better for it. You're just worn out and you haven't arrived at any conclusion. The father's saying to the son, you can learn from the teacher. You can learn from this teacher. He sought wisdom. He, he spent much time. He spoke many words, but don't necessarily follow in his footsteps because of the making of books, there is no end. Think about how you try to pursue wisdom, 
perhaps some of you, by seeking out new things, by new ideas, by new books. What's the latest book that's going to help me do this or that? What's the latest book that's going to help me be more spiritual and grow spiritually? Of the making of Christian books, there is no end. Just look at my library, ask my wife, and she'll tell you how many books I have that I have not read. I bought them because I thought they are going to help me in this way or that way. They're going to help me be a better man, a better pastor, and I haven't even touched them. There is a sort of wisdom in these things, but it falls short. And now we come to the end of the matter, the author says. Everything has been heard. Here's the philosophy of life for the author. Here's the takeaway from the book of Ecclesiastes. You've heard the philosophy. Que sera, sera, what what will be, will be. You've heard the philosophy. Carpe diem, seize the day. Now hear the philosophy of the author. Elohim Yirah. What? (laughs) Say that with me. Elohim Yirah. What does that mean? Fear God. Fear God and keep His commandments. You see, even in telling us our duty, He's orienting us to the God who stands above all. In the language here, it says, God, fear Him. His commandments, keep them. He is orienting us to have a right relationship to God and to His commandments. To fear God is... To recognize, first, God's absolute authority over you to do with you what he will or or won't. To worship him, to love him, to honor him. To obey his commandments, to keep his commandments is to live for his glory. To fear God and keep his commandments is to be in a right relationship with God and with others. To love God and to love other people. Now, An interesting thing about this command that he gives is that this seems rather simple, doesn't it? This is this isn't nothing revolutionary, is it? This is just this is what it would be to be a faithful Israelite person under God. To fear God and keep his commandments. So maybe it's almost shocking for those who are reading it. What? That's it? All of these beautiful, delightful words that the teacher has spoken all of the complexities of life, all this nuance, and you're just giving us this fear God and keep His commandments? Well, that's nothing new. That's what we're expected to do. It seems so simple, right? Fear God and keep His commandments. Notice the grounding the author gives for this philosophy of life. For this is the whole duty of man, or this is all man. This is all of man. This is now the fourth time we've seen that same phrase. And the author is using it in contrast to how the teacher is using it. The whole of man is not to eat, drink, and enjoy life as much as possible. The whole of man is not even ultimately death. The whole of man is this. This is why man was created. This is why man exists. To fear God and to keep His commandments. To live in a right relationship with God the God who made us for his own glory. But there's a second grounding the author gives, verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. 
It turns out then the teacher wasn't quite right about a few things. Death is not the end, and justice will not ultimately be perverted. The author of Ecclesiastes counters the cynicism of the teacher with the eschatological truth of divine judgment. This is the end of all mankind, standing before your Creator to give an account for what you have done, good or evil. That does bring fear to our hearts. Standing before the Almighty God, everything will be revealed, even the things your loved ones don't know about, even, even the things you've kept hidden from everybody else, everything will be laid bare before your Creator. But there's one more element we need to add to this story. Fear God and keep His commandments is an impossible task. To love God and love others with all of your heart is impossible. But this was the duty of the Israelite. This is the duty of every person made in the image of God for His glory. And none of us can achieve it in our own strength. Turn over in your Bibles to Romans 8, chapter 20. Romans 8, chapter 20. And we'll see something else the teacher actually got right about life under the sun. Look at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. This word futility is the same word used in the Greek translation of Ecclesiastes. In other words, you could say futility of futilities, all is futile, says the preacher. So Paul says that this world has indeed been subjected to futility. Because of the fall of mankind into sin, the whole creation was plunged into futility. You read the book of Ecclesiastes, you get a very dim and ugly picture of this world. And he got some of that right. Because because of sin, our world has been broken, messed up. It is in a state of decay and futility. Because of your sin and because of my sin, we have contributed to this mess. Ultimately, however, it was God who subjected it to futility, but he did so in such a way that creation itself, Paul is saying, has hope. The whole creation itself has hope, even though it has been plunged into this futility. Did you see that? You can keep going in verse 21. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes? For what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
in the midst of this world filled with suffering and inconsistencies and injustice, seemingly futile things, brothers and sisters, we wait patiently in hope. Do you ever groan inwardly? Eagerly awaiting your full adoption as sons and daughters of God? It's not a hope that may be, though. It's a hope that definitely, surely, this will come to pass. It is the sure confidence that there is a God who reigns supreme, a God who wasn't content to leave creation in its futility, but sent his own son into the midst of the futility. He experienced injustice himself as he was wrongfully tried and sentenced to death. He experienced the fate of all men in death as he was crucified and laid in the grave. So Jesus knew all of this would take place. He knew he was going to be unjustly crucified. He knew he would end up in the grave. He knew this was his end. But that did not cause him to live with the philosophy of K. Sarah Sarah. It did not lead him to... Uh, Carpe diem seized the day with the little time he had. Instead, he chose Elohim Yerah. Fear God and keep his commandments. He was the true and faithful Israelite who accomplished this for his people. Jesus lived for us and then died for us and rose from the dead. And Paul says in that same chapter, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. See, ultimately it's not up to us to be able to to hold the correct philosophy of life and then keep it, Christ has done this for us. We look not to our own ability to fear God and keep His commandments, but to Christ who accomplished it for us. So our adoption as sons and daughters of the Most High God, the renewal of creation itself, our redemption, and that of the whole created order has been accomplished through the the person and work of Jesus Christ. And now, just as we read, we walk not according to the flesh, brothers and sisters, but according to the Spirit within us. It's the Spirit within us who will produce the fruit in us that brings glory to God. So Christ has brought us into right relationship with the Father, and the Spirit enables us to begin living by this new philosophy of life, of fearing God and keeping His commandments. So then, what is your philosophy of life? What is it for the day? What is it for tomorrow? What is it for the rest of your life? And how will you be enabled to walk according to that philosophy of life? Let's pray together.